Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Each episode will feature a compelling conversation around an important issue. As we step into the tension, we remind you that the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views held by Millington Baptist Church. Now, let's start our session. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Bob Irving. I hope everyone listening is staying safe, healthy, and hopeful during the current crisis. I'm also praying that the conversations we have been having on the podcast are uh, both encouraging, challenging, and informative. Uh, It is sometimes not an easy task to accomplish all three of those, but that's certainly what we're trying to do uh, on our podcast. Uh, We're also trying to choose interesting topics, and so today we are going to discuss a few stories that have been in the news a lot recently, and that's the topics of the coronavirus, as you can imagine, but also the topic of the Middle East. And so for this conversation, I'm excited to talk to my friend Jason Casper. Jason is the Middle East correspondent for Christianity Today, uh, where he reports on news at the intersection of religion, politics, and culture. Uh, He resides with his family in Beirut, Lebanon having relocated recently following, following nine years in Cairo, Egypt. He's also lived in Tunisia, Jordan, and Mauritania, and appreciates the ministry God has given him to be a bridge between peoples who often misunderstand each other. He speaks Arabic and has an MA in Islamic studies. And so with, with that background, Jason, welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, Jason's originally a New Jersey guy, but he, uh, he lived abroad uh, for quite some time and obviously still lives abroad. So Jason, um, let's start out just a bit light here. What are, what are the top three things you miss living about in living in New Jersey? From living yeah. in New Jersey, I should say. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, New Jersey, which I you know, grew up there practically my whole life. It's uh, one thing you, uh, you can't really get anywhere in the Middle East is authentic New Jersey pizza. <laughs> the are irreplaceable. These sorts of things, uh, you know, I'm in Lebanon. Our food is spectacular. But at the same time, there's just things that aren't done quite the same way. I would definitely say those food items are something that, that get missed. I guess you could just hop on a boat and, and go sail over to Italy if you wanted to get some pizza. Although maybe not right now, given what's happening there. Yeah, I don't know. Are they as good as we are in Jersey? I, I wonder. I don't know. It's a little different. Uh, second thing I'd say, I don't necessarily want to make too much of this because we don't watch a lot of TV, but New Jersey Devils hockey uh, has not been very good the last few years. I still keep uh. up with it. I, uh, I, I miss my ice. You know, we don't get a lot of that over here in the Middle East. I, I imagine not. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the NHL season will still happen. We're uh, we're still waiting to see on those things, or at least maybe it'll happen, but with no fans. You know, my fantasy league, I'm in the playoffs. There's a chance here that I could nice. uh, pull through on this one, but you know, who knows? Who knows? It's just a nice way to stay connected to friends and family back home. <laughs> good, good. Home though, that's that's the third one I'd want to focus on. It's kind of somber a little bit, but uh, you know, my mom died three years ago, mm. and. Ever since that happened, you know, my dad moved to a different part of the country. All my brothers are, you know, scattered with their lives and families. So I don't have relatives in Jersey anymore. You know, the family house I grew up in was sold. Now, when we head back to Jersey, uh, sorry, excuse me, when we head back to the United States, we head to my wife's family in Eastern PA. And it's mm-hmm. almost a thing, but, you know, it's not. And 
with New Jersey being that, you know, central part of your identity for your whole life, you know, we live overseas now. Home is here. Uh, it's fine. But not having that spot where it's, it's yours, you know, you drive by and somebody else is living in that house when you come back to the States for a visit. It's, uh, you know, I definitely miss that, that sense of home, that sense of belonging that uh, really ties you to where you grew up. God's with you anywhere, but um, you don't want to understate some of those connections that are, you know, really formative in your life. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's certainly very true. Home, home is uh, a lot of ways where you grew up and where you have a lot of memories um, mm-hmm. from your childhood. So that's, that's, that's a good point. Well, hey, I want to I want to uh, get into discussing your work and your experience in Lebanon. Um, but first, mm-hmm. I want to ask about the topic that everybody is thinking about—that topic of the coronavirus and the COVID nineteen. Um, I am finding it interesting to ask people who live outside the United States their perspective on the pandemic. So, so maybe a question is: um, How has Lebanon been affected, and and what's your perspective of being over there on how things are going in the U.S. during this time? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Lebanon is, uh, it seems like it's in a better state than many. When uh, things really got going in the United States and uh, all the evacuation flights were going back and forth to bring Americans home, there was a very interesting article that was written that uh, highlighted the voice of expat Americans here in Lebanon. And they said, um, yeah, no, thank you. We'll just stay put right here. Um, in terms of the official cases that are reported, Lebanon is only at 750. Now, we're a population of 6 million. It's, it's a lot less than America, of course, but you know, less than 1,000 cases. We've got only 25 deaths in all this time. Part of the reason could be, you know, uh, our kids were told to stay home from school as early as March 2nd. You know, so they've been, they've been here at the house for two months plus now. And the country went on official lockdown on March 15th. So... These sorts of things really worked well. The, the government stepped in early. They, they kind of shut life down and they contained it pretty well. Uh, you know, you don't know the whole story, of course, about the whole country and what's reported and what isn't. But mm-hmm. while all of the regulations are, are still basically in place, they're starting to talk now about loosening things up, that maybe school can start again in another month. Some of the businesses maybe are beginning to open a little bit. But... Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a sense of relief that, okay, coronavirus makes you afraid of everybody. You know, like anybody could be infected. It's, it's a really wicked thing that it does to us socially. But at the same time, when I do venture out, when I have to go somewhere, when my wife goes shopping, you kind of sense that with the general precautions you have to take, mm-hmm. you'll stay safe. I mean, things are, things are definitely tolerable over here. It's a, it's a great blessing. So what are some of the things that the people in Lebanon think about? Do you have conversations with folks about what's happening in the U.S., or is that just usually a, a moot point with people? No, no. I mean, everybody talks about America, and they kind of feel like we're in a bit of chaos at this moment. You know, we can't get our act together, and it's... it's. Well, you say we, you mean the U.S., right? We, the United States, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm definitely seen that there's, uh, you know, political divisions and uh, all sorts of controversy. Death rates are skyrocketing. Um, You know, America is one of the largest countries in the world, of course. So Mm -hmm. the numbers, but even on a per capita basis, I think they're higher in the U.S. than in many other places. So 
part of it comes with our freedom. You know, we are not a country that regulates everything from the top down, like some of the other countries have been able to be successful in their containment techniques. So, I mean, even in our failings in the United States, you can see the blessings of America that often don't exist in other parts of the world. Right. But at the same time, you know, I, I don't know what to make of it. You know, it's, it's a hard time and, uh, you know, it's not my beat to cover, so to speak. So I'm not really uh, following too closely all the arguments to open up society, all the arguments to keep it down. I mean, making sense of the science, making sense of the statistics. It's, I really have a lot of sympathy for you guys living in the middle of this. It's, like I said, a blessing to be here and not have to deal with that. But it is scary, you know, to watch what the United States is going through and to have sympathy and, and just praying that our family and loved ones can stay clear of it. Yeah, it's interesting to me. It seems like the the different arguments for opening up are, are falling along, uh, you know, party lines. So if you're typically a conservative libertarian, you're making a strong argument for opening up right now. And if you're, uh, you know, more liberal Democrat, then you're 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 saying we need to keep the lockdowns indefinitely. And it doesn't seem like people are understanding both sides of the economic ramifications as well as the health uh, issues, as well as the uh, challenges with government overreach in some in some cases. And I think there's a lot of people that are concerned about all three of those. So how do we how do we have um, uh, helpful and fruitful conversations uh, with those different different ideas that are out there? Uh, but that's been going on in in politics in America for a while. People people run to the extremes, and uh, oftentimes it doesn't seem like they're having helpful and helpful conversations around any topic, let alone this one. So this is just exacerbating some of that stuff. It's definitely concerning. I mean that mm-hmm. that's what I and. I'm hurt by, in a sense, as an American, you know, just watching the the essential unity that I recognized in American society in my formative growing up years, watching that get corroded um, on both sides of the political spectrum. It's, you know, it's not healthy for society. It's, it's not Christian in many ways, and it's hard to know what to do about it. But, you know, I'm, I'm just glad the way that you're shaping this podcast, you know, to be mm-hmm. able to be able these things in ways that can be done in a winsome, friendly manner, even where people disagree and disagree harshly. Mm-hmm. And that's all and good that we disagree strongly with each other. But um, where the things aren't clear, there needs to be an essential charity that we keep one to another so that we can properly evaluate each other's arguments and, and find the best ways forward. Mm. That's a good word. Why don't we turn our attention specifically uh, to your work? Uh, what are some areas that you focus on in your reporting in the Middle East? And maybe along with that, I'm interested to know your perspective on the current, um, you know, state of the affairs between the nation states in the Middle East area. Could you kind of give us a, a roundup of what's happening over there and, and what you cover? Yeah, sure. Uh, Christianity today speaks of itself not as you know, news journalism primarily, but as thought journalism. Obviously, all the topics that are dealt with as a whole by the website and the magazine, they deal with what's going on in our nation and around the world. I mean, the news cycle drives everything. But I really appreciate their thought approach because, one, it's just easier. I don't have to be on the beat with breaking news all the time. There's a day or two where you can reflect. You can test your sources and... uh, you know, try to bring out the best of conversation so that we understand the, all the viewpoints that people happen to have. So if you take that as a principle and you just apply it to the Middle East, that's what I do over here. So 
when something happens in the Middle East that either takes Americans' attention or we, my editors, believe should be understood by Americans, then it becomes my job to tell that story. And I tell that story primarily through the lens of the evangelicals of the Middle East and the various countries where they reside, uh, but not exclusively, because they might not be right. They might you know, be influenced by their sectarian interests. So I have to weigh that against the larger Christian community, you know, the traditional Catholics and Orthodox who are the majority of the Christians in the Middle East, but they might be wrong also. You know, are they being persecuted? Are they not being persecuted? So then I have to also take into consideration what does the larger Muslim society understand about this? So my primary responsibility is always when the news has something to do with religion. But yet the job is to represent the reality of the situation the best that I can understand. Again, not my analysis. It has to be done through the lens of what all the local actors here are talking about. So as long as I keep that effort to um, make certain that the reality comes through as best I can understand it, then my second responsibility is to be absolutely faithful so that the local actors here that I'm quoting get their point across. Whether they're right or they're wrong, I have to weigh whether they're lying to me or trying to deceive me or, or, you know, have an agenda that they're pushing. That's part of the evaluative technique of being a journalist. But presuming that they just have a viewpoint that they honestly hold to, we need to hear it. Um, And we need to be affected, especially, like I said, with a primacy on evangelical voices or on Christian voices. We need to know what the church is dealing with in this part of the world as the news is, as it is everywhere, you know, sometimes hitting them in top of the head, uh, washing over them like the waves of the ocean. There's not a lot we can do but we have to think, we have to pray, we have to synthesize. And I'm just very thankful for the job that I have to be able to bring back to American evangelicals over here in this side of the world. Well, I certainly think that's a, that's an important, um, important role that you're playing over there. And uh, it's, it's good for us to have global perspectives because a lot of times we get in our, our bubbles and we tend to think that our little slice of the world is everything there is. Um, and I, I, I never thought about that before. I didn't realize there, there's this difference between news journalism and thought journalism, but that, that makes a whole lot of, a lot of sense the way you're describing it. Um, thought journalism, you're allowed to, you know, you're not, you're not always having to follow the news cycle 24 seven, which always seems like it's changing every five minutes. Um, so that's, that's good. Well, there's times I I got to hit my deadline, (laughs) you know, I'm not immune to it. But for the most part, there is a flexibility. It doesn't really matter if I tell the story the next day, sometimes the next week. You know, it takes a little while for America to, to care about what happens in the Middle East. And, you know, the past nine years that I was living over here, uh, you know, going through all the Arab Spring events, there were lots of times when a church blew up, you know, and you need to know today what's going on with that. So um, there is there is both. Um, and... You know, you asked, too, just about how things are, are over here in general, you know, what lens is going on to understand the general geopolitics of the Middle East. It's, you know, it's tricky, um, you know, especially if you want to take it from, uh, you know, a Middle Eastern perspective. How do they see things getting played out in the world? Um, you know, since moving to Lebanon, it's been very interesting because uh, a lot of the times when you look back at Lebanese parts of history, they explain things by 
the decisions that the international community made and how that impacts, um, you know, whether Lebanon had an orientation towards the West or towards the East, uh, whether it was more, uh, you know, freedom oriented or more security oriented. And so these things, I mean, it's just strange as an American because we grow up with the idea that, you know, we have agency, you know, okay, we can decide what our country is going to do and, and every other country can do the same. I don't know to the degree that that's true or that's not true because the Middle East is always awash in conspiracy theories. In, in, Leb in Egypt, for example, the whole decision was, is President Obama supporting the Muslim Brotherhood or not? And there were people who were absolutely convinced that he was and then others who said, no way. You know, like, but again, it wasn't so much what the Egyptian people are going to do, you know, by going to the streets or protesting this or voting for this guy. There's kind of a sense over here in the Middle East a lot of times that there are other factors at work and the popular reactions to them kind of flow with those international decisions. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but I can kind of give a little bit more specifics to it right now. Take, for example, like uh, the question of Iran. Mm. Under uh, President Obama, there was an earth-shattering deal in which Iran was going to be welcomed back into the international community under terms of a deal, which would limit their nuclear production, but also lift sanctions. And, and then all of a sudden, that greatly increased the influence of Iran in the Middle East. President Trump has said that was a mistake. And so now all of a sudden the sanctions snap back in and uh, everything's being choked. And, and that has a great influence on Lebanon because Hezbollah here is a political actor that is a militia that has strong relational and you know, even financial ties with Iran. So is, is Trump going to continue in office after the next election? You know, what happens if American policy shifts again? If he does and this stays, is the regime in Iran going to fall? Does that depend at all on whether the people of Iran want the regime to fall or not? And what are the implications going to be here in Lebanon, for example? Take another example. Uh, another, you know, the other really big power here in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia. Certainly this has been moving in the last few years, but accelerated once uh, President Trump came to office have been all the reforms that Saudi Arabia has been doing. And so there has been all these overtures towards increasing the amount of freedom. Women can drive there, for example, now. This was unheard of 10 years ago. Uh, other states in the Gulf region are really promoting the idea of religious tolerance and that we need to be one community with Muslims and Christians. These are Gulf states, you know, Wahhabi type people that would scare us, you know, and we always said these were the exporters of terrorism in the world. Their rhetoric has really changed, partially because that's been on the agenda of the United States under this current administration. Now, it's hard to say how real that is, or, you know, if these changes are uh, affecting, you know, the roots of society, there's evidence that it may be, and there's evidence that maybe it isn't, but Again, what's going to happen if there's another administration in the United States? Is this intrinsically driven by the Saudis, or are they doing things to please the United States to stay on the good side of the world economic order? It's hard to know, but you watch it all take place, and it just puts a complexity on this region 
that gives you a lot of sympathy for the people over here who are trying to live in the middle of it and get on with their lives and be good mothers, fathers, and citizens. You know, it's tricky. I imagine some of that has to do with when, like there will be another administration in the U.S. Uh, it's just a matter of when it will be. Will it be this, you know, will it be next year? Or will it be in four years? And then I imagine some of the geopolitical stuff will have shifted in the um, the countries in the Middle East also. So there's there could be interesting intersections of when things change and and how that affects you know both countries. Right. So um, let me let me ask you a question about uh, just changing nations. So so many Christians, I think, in America are struggling to understand our place as our nation shifts and changes in a lot of ways. Um, in the Middle East, how, how do Christians in the Middle East serve and minister uh, to their society as, uh, as things are changing and shifting over there as well? Hmm. Yeah, it really depends, I guess, on what country you want to talk about. There's, there's trends. Maybe, why don't we start with, uh, with Lebanon since you're there? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, Lebanon is not often on the consciousness of America. Um, we, it's that, that country just to the north of Israel, right? People kind exactly. of have a general sense of it, it exists, but not, not, a, right. not an awareness of it. Just to speak of the political situation right now, like even in my coverage, I've written in the eight months that we've been here in Lebanon, probably three articles about Lebanon. And it was almost me kind of pushing to get it done. Because if you were to think for yourself, like Lebanon, why well, even write about it? I mean, Americans just don't know. They went through a near revolution about three months ago, four months ago. They are about on the verge of economic bankruptcy with skyrocketing inflation rates. Corona has exacerbated that, and we're right on the border of Israel and Hezbollah and all the tensions that are going on. And of course, America's distracted these days, but who even knows? So um, it's, it's a little frustrating to be in a country where you start to develop a, an appreciation for it and an attachment to it, and nobody really has any idea what's going on in your backyard. So one, if you do like kind of take that as a, as a given, one reason why nobody's uh, paying attention to Lebanon right now is because it was the exact center of attention of the Middle East about, you know, three or four decades ago, you know, when they were going through their civil war. And Christians were up against Muslims and Christians were fighting Christians, Muslims were fighting Muslims. There was a big mess and, you know, I haven't even had time to figure it all out yet myself. But what that civil war really did to the church, um, I suppose it kind of cemented in the Western mindset towards this country a few different ideas. One is that um, every sect, every religion kind of sticks to itself. Lebanon is one-third Christian, one-third Sunni Muslim, one-third Shiite Muslim. And it's a confessional system of government where they all really have to agree to make any sort of decision work in their society. So they get on peacefully. You know, the war has driven lessons into the church and into the Muslims that it's really not good to fight. We shouldn't do that again. Um, and they've had that lesson uh, reinforced with all that's going on in Syria right across the border. So when you kind of take the church 
you, you look at it and you say like, this neighborhood is for the Christians and this neighborhood is for the Muslims and everybody lives in their own little part of the country and they get along fine, but they like it to be by themselves. It's so strange being here in this nation because compared to the nine years living in Egypt, I have almost never heard the Muslim call to prayer. We have Muslims in our neighborhood, you know, they're, they're around, but this area is known as a Christian area, so there's no mosques. I hear church bells. But yet, that Muslim overriding sense that permeates the Middle East just isn't here where we live, nor does it control Lebanon. So one of the things, let's not blame this on, on Islam, it doesn't necessarily factor in, but most of the other countries of the Middle East don't have a pervading sense of freedom, of liberty. Um, whether that is religion or not is up to debate, but certainly the political systems tend to be ruled by strong powers or strong parties that insist on controlling things from the top down. Here in Lebanon, there's no power that can control things from the top down. Each religious community is only a third. You can't force your way on anybody. So that means that in addition to the principles and you know, the secular values that many people here hold to, nobody can do otherwise, and there's a lot of freedom that exists in these margins. So what does the church do with this freedom? Well, when there's not an overriding sense of oppression or pressure or discrimination like exists among Christians in a lot of the Middle East, um, you can afford to kind of let your faith go. And here in Lebanon, it's a great picture because you can ski in the mountains and then later in the day, you can go down to the beach and wear your bikinis. You know, it's, it's that sense in which you can do what you want here. It's amazing. Religious conversion is allowed here. In most of the other countries of the Middle East, it isn't. So if you're a Christian, really, the way you live is dependent on your level of faith. So you might be practicing. You might might not care at all. You might be an activist trying to serve the kingdom of God, or you might be a uh, secular activist trying to uh, promote the homosexual uh, agenda and ability to achieve their rights here in this country and things like that. So everything exists here to some degree of toleration. But so would you say that there's, there's, there's a lot of freedom for Christians within Lebanon, as opposed to yes. um, certainly some other countries? Absolutely. And the question is what they do with it. And so you will see there is that pervading sense that everyone is a Christian. Nobody will give up that identity. Whether they're practicing or not, they belong to their religious sect. You know, most of them here are Maronite Catholics. Then there's a large majority of Greek Orthodox. And, you know, there's a small percentage of Protestants, Presbyterians, Baptists, and the like. But everyone is Christian, and that's never going to change. Now, when you say everyone is Christian, I thought there was a large Muslim population that's more in the ruling class in Lebanon. Is that, is that true or not true? Um, excuse me. When I was saying it that way, I meant describing the Christian community. The one oh, gotcha. But just to correct what you said about the ruling class, no, the ruling class is not Muslim here. The ruling class is shared. So mm. by law, the president of Lebanon is a Maronite Christian excuse me, whether that's by law or by custom, you know, this all needs to be figured out, but that's who it's going to be. And then the prime minister is by custom, or at least by law, um, a Sunni Muslim. Yet the speaker of the parliament, that, you know, third 
branch of government, so to speak, by general tradition is a Shiite Muslim. And if these people mm. cooperate with each other, things can move forward. If two communities kind of gang up on a third, well, there can be troubles. And you know what that outstanding third community might choose to resist by other means, fighting or obstruction. But yet at the same time, most of these religious communities are divided amongst themselves politically. So the current ruling class is understood to be one of the Christian parties and one of the Shiite Muslim parties, which is Hezbollah. And so this a ruling arrangement is done in partnership between these political mm. players, but they shift all the time. You know, just until a couple of years ago, really one of the Sunni Muslim uh, governing powers had the preponderance in political control, but always in partnership with various players on the Christian scene and on the various Muslim sects. So can you do a contrast with that? So how does that, the experience in Lebanon compare with uh, surrounding countries like Egypt and Jordan? What's the, what's the differences uh, mm -hmm. from what you just described in Lebanon versus in those countries? Well, in, in, in Egypt, there is one power. And generally speaking, that's the military. There is a uh, process of elections. They have a parliament. They have a president. But kind of everyone understands that society functions by the will of the, the military uh, security systems and the like. And so where that was shaken in the last several years of the Arab Spring, it wasn't clear maybe the Muslim Brotherhood is going to uh, take political control. Maybe the uh, Western liberal secular type of figures are going to be able to put their stamp on society. In the end, that all failed. And however it came to fail, what it did is it rebrought by popular uh, you know, approval, very largely speaking, it brought the strong central state run by the military back into control. So what do Christians do with that? The way it's always functioned in Egypt and the current reality is still evolving a little bit because society is being put back together after the Arab Spring years, is that as long as you toe the line politically, you have a good amount of freedom to do what you want. Now, that's not political freedom. You have a very narrow area in which you can do politics or, or have different political agendas. Uh, that's not tolerated. But you can be social, you can be liberal, you can stick to your own ways, you can make money, you can contribute. And the Christians, they have a little bit of a precarious position there because Overall, the Egyptian people don't have freedom in the way in which, say, Lebanese people have. But then when you look at Christians as a minority within that lack of freedom, there are no real laws that push against the uh, Christians of Egypt. There are understandings, there is a discrimination, there are certain professions that are tacitly off limits to them. But there is a general sense in which the government must be very sensitive to the Muslims as Muslims. And the government has always tended to be a little bit more secular, a little bit more open. That's very good for their public image. It's also the way the Egyptian people tend to be. They don't want a harsh religious rule on top of them. Muslims don't want that primarily. 
But those people who want to enforce a more strict interpretation of Sharia law or have a popular demonstration of uh, you know, Islamic piety, these need to be satisfied. They need to be kept at bay. And so the government, the culture is always concerned to, in a sense, this isn't the right way to say it, but keep Christians in their place. They're citizens, they have freedoms, they're welcome to contribute to society, but yet there's limits. And so within those limits, Christians always have to figure out what can we do, what can we not do. So for example, I mentioned in Lebanon, there's the ability to convert religiously here. If you're a Muslim and you wanna become a Christian, more power to you. Your family may or may not care, but the government's not gonna do anything about it. In Egypt, the government probably doesn't really care what any one particular citizen believes. But once it becomes known that a Muslim has publicly identified as a Christian, that becomes a security threat because there's a whole lot of Muslims who will be very upset about that, possibly stir up trouble, and that would make Egypt look bad. So what are you going to do as a Christian? You know, are you going to share your faith? Are you just going to contribute to society in a quiet way that, you know, serves people, but, you know, limits your ability to, uh, you know, to win others to Jesus? Well, you're a little stuck because as any individual person, again, your own faith may be something real to you, or it may be something that you just inherit as part of a traditional Christian community that goes back to the time of St. Mark the Apostle. And all of these ways, there's a whole scope of responses that the church does in society to kind of keep peace. But one of the ways it does that is by giving its political assent to the ruling powers, trying to stay on good terms with Muslim society, and not ruffling feathers if, you know, some Christians might say that could be demanded by the gospel and its claims for justice and its claims for evangelism or, or things like that. You know, you start pushing the envelope a little bit as a Christian in Egypt, and you can get yourself in trouble. Hmm. Well, certainly in America, we, we would resonate probably more with the experience in Lebanon because we, we love our freedom over here, and, hmm. and I do think that's a good thing. Um, so maybe as we, as we just kind of finish up here, one final question for you would be, how, how might the experience of Christians in the Middle East and even in Egypt serve as a model for us in the, in the U.S. in how we interact with, you know, government and, and, and the way that we live out our faith in a society that might not be um, uh, as accepting of our beliefs as certainly as previously was the case. Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, ways in which implications can be drawn for the United States experience, depending on how the American views Christianity in America. So the way that Christians in Egypt view um, their general existence and their interactions with society is they're, they're okay. They know that they don't have everything that they want to, but what they do is they retreat into their churches. They create culture for themselves. Um, in the church where they're by themselves, they're free. They can be the way they want to be. They're, they don't have to worry about what everybody is thinking about them or if they're going to make a mistake that'll get them in trouble. And so because they feel free and safe with each other, there is a very vibrant Christian spirit and faith among most Egyptian Christians, I would say, uh, both the evangelicals and the Orthodox. But yet the way they nurture that and live that out 
is often isolated from society. And I think that's a temptation for American evangelicals, especially when we feel like culture war stuff is pushing against us, that the media doesn't respect us, um, the political tides, we're always at war, we have to defend what we want. Well, it kind of gives you a little bit of a fighting spirit, but it also means you feel if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it for my own kind. When you look at evangelical, you know, worship music and literature and, and media, and a lot of the things that we do, we're doing them for ourselves uh, rather than something that can give out to the society as a whole, because there's a lot of pressure that American evangelicals feel under, just like the Egyptian Christians do. That's a really interesting point. I feel like, you know, and what people typically talk about is that we create an evangelical subculture because we want to retreat away from the, what, what might be the dominant mainstream culture. Um, but, that, but that doesn't leave room for us to interact with people that don't, don't believe what we believe. So mm-hmm. a really interesting point you just brought out there. Well, there's a worse model too. We didn't talk about Syria. Now I'll just do some mm. brief, you know, we all know how the civil war has torn up society in Syria. And, you know, I could talk for a while about the nuances of the Christian there, but by and large, the Christians, the church, aligned themselves to the ruling regime. Now, let them be justified in that for any sort of ways. I'm not here going to give any sense of criticism, but they felt under such pressure that they had to align themselves with political power. And as the country started to go to war with itself, the Christians were seen as the people of one party, the people of the government. And the government was seen as oppressive, as seen as not representative of the people's interest. Now, America is nowhere near that type of polarization. But it also could possibly speak to, you know, a current evangelical interest in uh, political alignments in the United States. Obviously, the attachment to President Trump is legitimate on so many political issues, if you want to go A, B, C, or D, and analyze who should we favor because of this policy or that policy. But there's also a sense in which it's kind of being tethered and communicated for the benefit of a political interest and perhaps detrimental to a wider worship, a a wider witness, so to speak. Now, here, Obviously, I want to be very careful in not making any sort of political pronouncements one way or the other. But if you look at the model that Syria gives, sometimes you can feel like you're under such pressure and and driven into such a corner that you might forget that the kingdom of God is bigger than your own political interests. And whether, you know, obviously the readership of Christianity today is is largely an evangelical readership. On the left, these same dynamics exist. I'm less familiar with them because I'm a traditional American evangelical. But yet, no matter which way your faith attaches itself to a political interest, it can become manipulated by such interests, and it can potentially damage witness. And so the Christians of Syria um, maybe did what they had to do, or maybe they could have done things differently, or maybe they could have contributed in a better way to reconciliation, as many of them tried to do. So it's just a different lens through which you can see your 
own experience by what the Middle East is and has been going through for a long time. Well, Jason, I think that's, that's really insightful and just uh, a, a good background on the Middle East. And we can see how even, even over there, there's, there's topics that intersect with what we're experiencing here in America. So I really appreciate your, your thoughtful insight and in, in drawing that out. Um, we, we, we do need to wrap up here. So I just want to say thank you so much for your, for your time on the podcast. Um, maybe at some point we'll have you back again for, for another, uh, another topic. And uh, I hope you enjoy this at home. And uh, we hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.